Section 22 of Four and Twenty Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Beauty and the Beast by Madame de Villeneuve. Translated by James Blanche. Part 4. The day seemed to her longer than any she had previously passed in that palace, not so much from regret for those she had quitted as from her impatience again to behold the beast, and to say everything she could to him in the way of excuse for her conduct. She was also animated by another desire, that of again holding in slumber one of those sweet conversations with her dear unknown, a pleasure she had been deprived of during the two months she had passed with her family, and which she could not enjoy anywhere but in that palace. The beast and the unknown were, in short, alternately the subjects of her reflections. One moment she reproached herself for not returning the affection of a lover who, under the form of a monster, displayed so noble a mind. The next she deplored, having set her heart upon a visionary object, who had no existence except in her dreams. She began to doubt whether she ought to prefer the imaginary devotion of a phantom to the real affection of the beast. The very dream in which the unknown appeared to her was invariably accompanied by warnings not to trust to sight. She feared it was but an idle illusion born of the vapours of the brain, and destroyed by light of day. Thus undecided, loving the unknown, yet not wishing to displease the beast, and seeking repose from her thoughts in some entertainment, she went to the French comedy, which she found exceedingly poor. Shutting the window abruptly, she hoped to be better pleased at the opera. She thought the music miserable. The Italians were equally unable to amuse her. Their comedy appeared to her to want smartness, wit, and action. Weariness and distaste accompanied her everywhere and prevented her taking pleasure in anything. The gardens had no attractions for her. Her court endeavoured to entertain her, but the monkeys lost their labour in frisking, and the parrots and the other birds in chattering and singing. She was impatient for the visit of the beast, the noise of whose approach she expected to hear every instant, but the hour so much desired came without the appearance of the monster. Alarmed and almost angry at his delay, she tried in vain to account for his absence. Divided through hope and fear, her mind agitated, her heart a prey to melancholy, she descended into the gardens, determined not to re-enter the palace, till she had found the beast. No trace of him could she discover anywhere. She called him. Echo alone answered her. Having passed more than three hours in this disagreeable exercise, overcome by fatigue, she sank upon a garden seat. She imagined the beast was either dead or had abandoned the place. She saw herself alone in that palace, without the hope of ever leaving it. She regretted her conversations with the beast, unentertaining as they had been to her, and what appeared to her extraordinary even to discover she had so much feeling for him, 
She blamed herself for not having married him, and considering she had been the cause of his death, for she feared her too long absence had occasioned it, heaped upon herself the keenest and most bitter reproaches. In the midst of her miserable reflections, she perceived that she was seated in that very avenue in which, during the last night, she had passed under her father's roof. She had dreamed she saw the beast expiring in some strange cavern, convinced that chance had not conducted her to this spot. She rose and hurried towards the thicket, which she found was not impenetrable. She discovered another hollow, which appeared to be that she had seen in her dream. As the moon gave but a feeble light, the monkey pages immediately appeared with a sufficient number of torches to illuminate the chasm, and to reveal to her the beast stretched upon the earth as she thought asleep. Far from being alarmed at his sight, Beauty was delighted, and approaching him boldly, placed her hand upon his head and called to him several times. But finding him cold and motionless, she no longer doubted he was dead, and consequently gave utterance to the most mournful shrieks and the most affecting exclamations. The assurance of his death, however, did not prevent her from making every effort to recall him to life. On placing her hand on his heart, she felt to her great joy that it still beat. Without further delay, Beauty ran out of the cave to the basin of a fountain, where taking up some water in her joined hands, she hastened back with it and sprinkled it upon him. But as she could bring very little at a time and split some of it before she could return to the beast, her assistance had been but meagre if the monkey courtiers had not flown to the palace and returned with such speed that in a moment she was furnished with a vase for water as well as with proper restoratives. She caused him to smell them and swallow them, and they produced so excellent an effect that he soon began to move and show some kind of consciousness. She cheered him with her voice and caressed him as he recovered. What anxiety have you caused me? said she to him kindly. I knew not how much I loved you. The fear of losing you has proved to me that I was attached to you by stronger ties than those of gratitude. I vowed to you that I had determined to die if I had failed in restoring you to life. At these tender words, the beast, feeling perfectly revived, replied in a voice which was still feeble. It is very kind of you, Beauty, to love so ugly a monster, but you do well. I love you better than my life. I thought you would never return. It would have killed me. Since you love me, I will live. Retire to rest, and assure yourself that you will be as happy as your good heart renders you worthy to be. Beauty had never before heard so long a speech from the beast. It was not very eloquent, but it pleased for its gentleness and sincerity observable in it. She had expected to be scolded, or at least to have been reproached. She had from this moment a better opinion of his disposition. No longer thinking him so stupid, she even considered his short answers a proof of his prudence, and more and more prepossessed in his favour, she retired to her apartment, her mind occupied with the most flattering ideas. 
extremely fatigued, she found there all the refreshments she needed. Her heavy eyelids promised her a sweet slumber, asleep almost as soon as her head was on her pillow. Her dear unknown failed not to present himself immediately. What tender words did he not utter to express the pleasure he experienced at seeing her again? He assured her that she would be happy, that it only remained to her to follow the impulse of her good heart. Beauty asked him if her happiness was to arise from her marriage with the beast. The unknown replied that it was the only means of securing it. She felt somewhat annoyed at this. She thought it even extraordinary that her lover should advise her to make her rival happy. After this first dream, she thought she saw the beast dead at her feet. An instant afterwards, the unknown reappeared and disappeared again as instantly to give place to the beast. But what she observed most distinctly was the lady who seemed to say to her, I am pleased with thee. Continue to follow the dictate of reason and trouble thyself about naught. I undertake the task of rending thee happy. Beauty, although asleep, appeared to acknowledge her partiality to the unknown and her repugnance to the monster, whom she could not consider lovable. The lady smiled at her objections and advised her not to make herself uneasy about her affection for the unknown, for that the emotions she felt were not incompatible with the resolution she had formed to do her duty, that she might follow her inclination without resistance and that her happiness would be perfected by espousing the beast. This dream, which only ended with her sleep, furnished her with an inexhaustible source of reflection. In this vision, as in those which had preceded it, she found more coherence than is usually displayed in dreams, and she therefore determined to consent to this strange union. But the image of the unknown rose unceasingly to trouble her, it was the sole obstacle, but not a slight one. Still uncertain as to the course she ought to take, she went to the opera. But without terminating her embarrassment, at the end of the performance, she sat down to supper. The arrival of the beast was alone capable of deciding her. Far from reproaching her for her long absence, the monster, as if the pleasure of seeing her, had made him forget his false distresses appeared on entering beauty's apartment to have no other anxiety but that of ascertaining if she had been much amused if she had been well received and if her health had been good she answered these questions and added politely that she had paid dearly for all the pleasures his care had enabled her to enjoy by the cruel pain she had endured on finding him in so sad a state on her return the beast briefly thanked her, and then, being about to take his leave, asked her, as usual, if she would marry him. Beauty was silent for a short time, but at last, making up her mind, she said to him, trembling, Yes, beast, I am willing, if you will pledge me your faith, to give you mine. I do, replied the beast and i promise you never to have any wife but you then rejoined beauty i accept you for my husband and swear to be 
a fond and faithful wife to you. She had scarcely uttered these words when a discharge of artillery was heard, and that she might not doubt it being a signal of rejoicing. She saw from her windows the sky all in a blaze with the light of twenty thousand fireworks, which continued rising for three hours. They formed true lovers' knots, while on elegant escutcheons appeared beauty's initials, and beneath them, in well-defined letters, long live beauty and her husband. After this display had terminated, the beast took his departure, and beauty retired to rest. No sooner was she asleep than her dear unknown paid her his usual visit. He was more richly attired than she had ever seen him. How deeply I am obliged to you, charming beauty, said he. You have released me from the frightful prison in which I have groaned for so long a time. Your marriage with the beast will restore a king to his subjects, a son to his mother, and life to a whole kingdom. We shall all be happy. Beauty, at these words, felt bitterly annoyed, perceiving that the unknown, far from evincing the despair such an engagement as she had entered into, should have caused him, gazed on her with eyes sparkling with extreme delight. She was about to express her discontent to him, when the lady in her turn appeared in her dream. Behold thee victorious, said she. We owe everything to thee, beauty. Thou hast suffered gratitude to triumph over every other feeling. None but thou would have had the courage to keep their word at the expense of their inclination, nor to have periled their life to have saved that of their father. In return for this, there are none who can ever hope to enjoy such happiness as thy virtue has won for thee. Thou knowest at present little, but the rising sun shall tell thee more. When the lady had disappeared, Beauty again saw the unknown youth, but stretched on the earth as dead. All the night passed in such dreams, but they had become familiar to her, and did not prevent her from sleeping long and soundly. It was broad daylight when she awoke. The sun streamed into her apartment with more brilliancy than usual. Her monkeys had not closed the shutters, believing the sight that met her eyes but a continuation of her dreams, and that she was sleeping still. Her joy and surprise were extreme at discovering that it was a reality, and that on a couch beside her lay in a profound slumber her beloved unknown, looking a thousand times more handsome than he had done in her vision. To assure herself of the fact, she arose hastily and took from off her toilet table the miniature she usually wore on her arms, but she could not have been mistaken. She spoke to him in the hope of awaking him from the trance into which he seemed to have been thrown by some wonderful power. Not staring at her voice, she shook him by the arm. This effort was equally ineffectual, and only served to convince her that he was under the influence of enchantment, and that she must await the end of the charm, which it was reasonable to suppose had an appointed period. How delighted was she to find herself betrothed to him 
who alone had caused her to hesitate, and to find that she had done from duty that which she would have done from inclination. She no longer doubted the promise of happiness which had been made to her in her dreams. She now knew that the lady had truly assured her that her love for the unknown was not incompatible with the affection she entertained for the beast, seeing that they were one and the same person. In the meanwhile, however, her husband never woke. After a slight meal, she endeavoured to pass away the time in her usual occupations, but they appeared to her insipid, as she could not resolve to leave her apartments, nor bear to sit idle. She took up some music and began to sing. Her birds, hearing her, joined their voices to hers, and made a concert, the more charming to her as she expected every moment it would be interrupted by the awaking of her husband, for she flattered herself she could dissolve the spell by the harmony of her voice. The spell was soon broken, but not by the means she imagined. She heard the sound of a chariot rolling beneath the windows of her apartment, and the voices of several persons approaching. At the same moment, the monkey captain of the guard, by the peak of his parrot interpreter, announced the visit of some ladies. Beauty, from her windows, beheld the chariot that brought them. It was of an entirely novel description, and of matchless beauty. Four white stags, with horns and hoofs of gold, superiorly caparisoned, drew this equipage, the singularity of which increased Beauty's desire to know who were the owners of it. By the noise, which became louder, she was aware that the ladies had nearly reached the antechamber. She considered it right to advance and receive them. She recognized in one of them the lady she had been accustomed to behold in her dreams. The other was not less beautiful. Her high and distinguished bearing sufficiently indicated that she was an illustrious personage. She was no longer in the bloom of youth, but her air was so majestic that beauty was uncertain to which of the two strangers she ought first to address herself. She was still under this embarrassment, when the one with whose features she was already familiar, and who appeared to exercise some sort of superiority over the other, turning to her companion, said, Well, Queen, what think of you of this beautiful girl? You owe to her the restoration of your son to life, for you must admit the miserable circumstances under which he existed could not be called living. Without her, you would never again have beheld this prince. He must have remained in the horrible shape to which he had been transformed, had he not found in the world one only person who possessed virtue and courage equal to her beauty. I think you will behold with pleasure the son she has restored to you become her husband. They love each other, and nothing is wanting to their perfect happiness but your consent. Will you refuse to bestow it on them? The queen, at these words, embracing Beauty affectionately, exclaimed, Far from using my consent, their union will afford me the greatest felicity. Charming and virtuous child, to whom I am under so many obligations, tell me who you are and the names of the sovereigns who are so happy as to have given birth. 
to so perfect a princess. Madam, replied Beauty modestly, it is long since I had a mother. My father is a merchant more distinguished in the world for his poverty and his misfortunes than for his birth. At this frank declaration, the astonished queen recoiled a pace or two and said, What? You are only a merchant's daughter? Ah, oh, great fairy, she added, casting a mortified look on her companion, and then remained silent. But her manner sufficiently expressed her thoughts, and her disappointment was legible in her eyes. It appears to me, said the fairy haughtily, that you are discontented with my choice. You regard with contempt the condition of this young person, and yet she was the only being in the world who was capable of executing my project, and who could make your son happy. I am very grateful to her for what she has done, replied the queen. But, powerful spirit, she continued, I cannot refrain from pointing out to you the incongruous mixture of that noblest blood in all the world, which runs in my son's veins, with that of the obscure race from which the person had sprung. To whom you would unite him? I confess I am little gratified by the supposed happiness of the prince. If it must be purged by an alliance so degrading to us and so unworthy of him, is it impossible to find in the world a maiden whose birth is equal to her virtue? I know many excellent princesses by name. Why am I not permitted to hope that I may see him, the processor of one of those? At this moment the handsome unknown appeared. The arrival of his mother and the fairy had aroused him, and the noise they had made was more effective than all the efforts of beauty such being the nature of the spell. The queen held him a long time in her arms without speaking a word. She found again a son whose fine qualities rendered him worthy of all her affection. What joy for the prince to see himself released from a horrible form, and a stupidity more painful to him because it was affected and had not obscured his reason. He had recovered the liberty to appear in his natural form by means of the object of his love, and that reflection made it still more precious to him. After the first transports which nature inspired him was at the sight of his mother, the prince hastened to pay those thanks to the fairy which duty and gratitude prompted. He did so in the most respectful terms, but as briefly as possible in order to be at liberty to turn his attentions towards beauty. He had already, by tender glances, expressed to her his feelings, and was about to confirm with his lips, in the most touching language, what his eyes had spoken, when the fairy stopped him and bade him be the judge between her and his mother. Your mother, said she, condemns the engagement you have entered into with beauty, she considers that her birth is too much beneath yours. For my part, I think that her virtues make up for that inequality. It is for you, prince, to say with which of us your own feelings coincide, and that you may be under no restraint in declaring to us your real sentiments. I announce to you that you have full liberty of choice. 
although you have pledged your word to this amiable person, you are free to withdraw it. I will answer for her that beauty will release you from your promise without the least hesitation. Although through her kindness you have regained your natural form, and I assure you also that her generosity will cause her to carry disinterestedness to the extent of leaving you at liberty to dispose of your hand in favour of any person on whom the queen may advise you to bestow it. What say you, beauty? pursued the fairy, turning towards her. Have I been mistaken in thus interpreting your sentiments? Would you desire a husband who would become so with regret? Assuredly not, madam, replied Beauty. The prince is free. I renounced the honour of being his wife. When I accepted him, I believed I was taking pity on something below humanity. I engaged myself to him only with the object of conferring on him the most single favour. Ambition had no place in my thoughts. Therefore, great fairy, I implore you to exact no sacrifice from the queen, whom I cannot blame for the scruples she entertains under such circumstances. Well, queen, what say you to that? inquired the fairy in a disdainful and displeased tone. Do you consider that princesses, who are so by the caprice of fortune, better deserve the high rank in which it has placed them than this young maiden for my part i think she should not be prejudiced by an origin from which she has elevated herself by her conduct the queen replied with some embarrassment beauty is incomparable her merit is infinite nothing can surpass it but madam can we not find some other mode of rewarding her is it not to be affected without sacrificing to her the hand of my son? Then turning to Beauty, she continued, Yes, I owe you more than I can pay. I put, therefore, no limit to your desires. Ask boldly, I will grant you everything, with the sole exception, but the difference will not be great to you. Choose a husband from amongst the nobles of my court. However high in rank, he will have cause to bless his good fortune and for your sake i will place him so near the throne that your position will be scarcely less enviable i thank you madam replied beauty but i ask no reward from you i am more than repaid by the pleasure of having broken the spell which had deprived a great prince of his mother and of his kingdom my happiness would have been perfect if i had rendered this service to my own sovereign all I desire is that the fairy will deign to restore me to my father. The prince, who by order of the fairy had been silent throughout this conversation, was no longer master of himself, and his respect for the commands he had received failed to restrain him. He flung himself at the feet of the fairy and of his mother and implored them in the strongest terms not to make him more miserable than he had been by sending away beauty and depriving him of the happiness of being her husband. At these words, beauty, gazing on him with an air full of tenderness, but mingled with a noble pride, said, Prince, I cannot conceal from you my affection. Your disenchantment is a proof of it, and I should in vain endeavour to disguise my feelings. I confess without a blush that I love you better than my life. Why should I dissimulate? 
We may disavow evil impulses, but mine are perfectly innocent, and are authorized by the generous fairy to whom we are both so much indebted. But if I could resolve to sacrifice my feelings when I thought it my duty to do so for the beast, you must feel assured that I shall not flatter on this occasion when it is no longer the interest of the monster that is at stake but your own. It is enough for me to know who you are, and that I am to renounce the glory of being your wife. I will even venture to say that if, yielding to your entreaties, the Queen should grant the consent you ask, it would not alter the case, for in my own reason, and even in my love, you would meet with an insurmountable obstacle. I repeat that I ask no favour but that of being allowed to return to the bosom of my family, where I shall forever cherish the remembrance of your bounty and your affection. Generous fairy, exclaimed the prince, clasping her hands in supplication, for mercy's sake, do not allow beauty to depart. Make me rather again the monster that I was, for then I shall be her husband. She pledged her word to the beast, and I prefer that happiness to all those she has restored me to, if I must purchase them so dearly. The fairy made no answer, but she looked steadily at the queen, who was moved by so much true affection, but whose pride remained unshaken. The despair of her son affected her, yet she could not forget that beauty was the daughter of a merchant, and nothing more. She, notwithstanding, feared the anger of the fairy, whose manner and silence sufficiently evinced her indignation. Her confusion was extreme. Not having power to utter a word, she feared to see a fatal termination to a conference which had offended the protecting spirit. No one spoke for some minutes, but the fairy at length broke the silence, and casting an affectionate look upon the lovers, she said to them, I find you worthy of each other. It would be a crime to part two such excellent persons. You shall not be separated, I promise you and I have sufficient power to fulfil my promise. The queen shuddered at these words, and would have made some remonstrance, but the fairy anticipated her by saying, For you, queen, the little value ye set upon virtue, unuttered by the vain titles, which alone you respect, would justify me in heaping on you the bitterest reproaches. But I excuse your fault, arising from pride of birth, and I will take no other vengeance beyond doing this little violence to your prejudice, and for which you will not be long without thanking me. Beauty, at these words, embraced the knees of the fairy, and exclaimed, Ah, oh, do not expose me to the misery of being told all my life that I am unworthy of the rank to which your bounty would elevate me. Reflect that this prince, who now believes that his happiness consists in the possession of my hand, may very shortly, perhaps, be of the same opinion as the queen. No, no, Beauty, fear nothing, rejoined the fairy. The evils you anticipate cannot come to pass. I know a sure way of protecting you from them. And should the prince be capable of despising you after marriage, he must take some other reason than the inequality of your condition. Your birth is not inferior to his own. Nay, the advantage is even considerably on your side, 
for the truth is," she said sternly to the Queen, "that you behold your niece, and what must render her still more worthy of your respect is, that she is mine also, being the daughter of my sister, who was not, like you, a slave to rank, which is lustrous without virtue. That fairy, knowing how to estimate true worth, did your brother, the king of the happy island, the honour to marry him, and preserved this fair fruit of their union from the fury of a fairy who desired to be her stepmother. From the moment of her birth, I destined her to be the wife of your son. I desired, by concealing from you the result of my good service, to give you an opportunity of showing your confidence in me. I had some reason to believe that it was greater than it appears to have been. You might have relied upon me for watching over the destiny of the prince. I had given you proofs enough of the interest I took in it, and you needed not to have been under any apprehension that I should expose him to anything that would be disgraceful to him or to you. I feel persuaded, madam, continued she, with a smile which had still something of bitterness in it, that you will not object to honour us with your alliance. The queen, astonished and embarrassed, knew not what to answer. The only way to atone for her fault was to confess it frankly and evince a sincere repentance. I am guilty, generous fairy, said she, your bounties should have satisfied me that you would not suffer my son to have formed an alliance unworthy of him. But, pardon, I beseech you, the prejudice of my rank, which urged that royal blood cannot marry one of humbler birth without degradation. I acknowledge that I deserve you should punish me by giving to beauty a mother-in-law more worthy of her. But you take too kind an interest in my son to render him the victim of my error. As to you, dear beauty, she continued, embracing her tenderly, you must not resent my resistance. It was caused by my desire to marry my son to my niece, whom the fairy had often assured me was living, notwithstanding all appearances to the contrary. She had drawn so charming a portrait of her that without knowing you, I loved you dearly enough to risk offending the fairy in order to preserve to you the throne and the heart of my son. So saying, she recommenced her caresses, which beauty received with respect. The prince, on his part, enraptured at this agreeable intelligence, expressed his delight in looks alone. Behold us all satisfied, said the fairy, and now, to terminate this happy adventure, we only need the consent of the royal father of the princess, but we shall shortly see him here. Beauty requested her to permit the person who had brought her up, and whom she had hitherto looked upon as her father, to witness her felicity. I admire such consideration, said the fairy. It is worthy a noble mind, and, as you desire it, I undertake to inform him. Then, taking the queen by the hand, she led her away under the pretext of showing her over the enchanted palace. It was to give the newly betrothed fair the liberty of conversing with each other for the first time without restraint or the aid of illusion. They would have followed, but she forbade them. 
the happiness in store for them inspired each with equal delight they could not entertain the least doubt of their mutual affection their conversation confused and unconnected their protestations a hundred times repeated were to them more convincing proofs of love than the most eloquent language could have afforded after having exhausted all the expressions that passion suggests under such circumstances to those that are truly in love beauty inquired of her lover by what misfortune he had been so cruelly transformed into a beast she requested him also to relate to her all the events of his life preceding that shocking metamorphosis End of section twenty two